0: and I'm going I'm going to enjoy the blessing. Okay, back to why we're here today in John chapter 14 verse 12 through 14 if you don't have your Bible we'll have the scripture on the text uh, but I invite you to turn your Bible let's turn our Bible to our greatest work. We have been talking now for several Sundays been studying in the Word of God about the return of Christ and the fact that Christ's return is imminent. It is soon. I'm convinced, based upon what we've seen in Matthew 24, as we look at the conditions of our culture and, and our society and the world today, I believe that they are ripe, they are ready for the return of Christ. And, and I'm convinced He is coming soon. And because of that, in Matthew 24 and 25, because we believe that He's coming soon, it's important for us to be ready, personally ready for the return of Christ. So to have a personal relationship with Christ as my Savior and Lord is incredibly important because on Judgment Day, that will be really everything. That will define where we spend eternity. So important that if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior to be ready before that day because once it comes, there is no other chance or opportunity to get ready. So get ready here in this life. So we talked about the readiness in Matthew 25 where we talked about the ten bridesmaids. Five were ready and five were not when the groom came. And the five that were not ready were left out. They did not and were not allowed to have access into the wedding feast. And Christ is the groom and we are the bride. And the wedding day will soon come as all weddings usually do. And on that moment, at that time, we need to be ready when that wedding is going to happen. So... We then saw right after that in Matthew 25 the important parable where Jesus talks about the three guys. One was given five, one given two, and one given one talent. The five took the guy who was given five talents, and went quickly to work and had ten, the guy who was given two went quickly to work and had two, uh, four, and the guy that had one buried it, if you remember, and did absolutely nothing. He didn't work at all in anticipation and expectation of when the master was to return. He didn't give any any consideration for that, didn't work. At all, And we talked about the importance of the work that we are to do in order to invest what God has entrusted to us in kingdom work. Last week in Matthew chapter 9, we talked about the importance of working until Jesus comes. And we talked about the field, the field is whitened to harvest. And we are to pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. And we saw how Jesus modeled that for us. And as we pray, we were to go. And as we go into the field, it's important to know what what kind of work are we supposed to be about? What kind of work are we to be about? I and mean, if I'm going to go and work in the field that God has prepared, that has ripened the harvest, what kind of work does he expect me to do as his disciple? Now, for those of you who have not been here and you are sort of not been here all week, so let me just preface this by sort of kind of stepping aside here for a minute and talking about Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that we're not saved by works as any man should boast, but we're saved by grace through faith in that it is not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God. Let me say this. We're not saved. We are, we are saved. Let me say that. Again, we are saved from works, but we are saved to works. I said that right. We are saved from works, but we are saved to work. We are saved from work in that we cannot do anything in and of ourselves, any kind of work that would merit, earn, deserve, or grant us access into heaven. Jesus has already done all of the work for us. And through faith and trust in him, in that atoning, redeeming work, we put our faith in what he did on the cross, that work is sufficient. We do nothing else except trust, believe, and put our faith in that work. And we have now a Savior who grants us access to heaven. And we have this wonderful thing that John three sixteen calls eternal life. It's an abundant life and eternal life. So he saved us from works. So we're not working here. We're not talking about work in order to grant us access into heaven when it's all over with. But we're talking about saving into works he has saved us from work so that we can then do the work now as a saved believer we have now a work that he expects us to do so the question that I have for us as we begin this study is basically this as we preface this whole thing with this one statement as a disciple as a believer what is the greatest work that you could do for him What is the greatest work? Now, you're not working in order to be saved, but you're working because you are saved. Because, show me your works, and it'll prove that I am saved. And we're going to talk about eventually at the end of Matthew 25, if we can get there. I keep getting sidetracked from the end of Matthew 25, but he talks about the judgment, and we'll get there at some point in this month, at some point. But what is our greatest work? If I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I have been called to go into his field to labor as a laborer in a harvest that he has ready, what kind of work is that? What is my greatest work? And so I want to ask four questions in our text in John 14, 12 through 14 today. And as we ask these four questions, we're going to answer the question a little bit different for us today in this study. And so I'm going to mix it up a little bit. Four questions, we're going to answer the questions. Here are the four questions. The fourth question, number one, who is Jesus addressing in this text? Who is he addressing? Who is he speaking about? Who is he speaking to? Number two, what is Jesus expecting from those of us to whom he's addressing? And then question number three, why is this then, this work, to be accomplished? How is it going to be accomplished? How is it to be fulfilled? How is it to be done? And then the last question is basically, when will it happen? When will it happen? So let's take a look at the first question in fourteen twelve. Who is Jesus addressing in the text? The answer is found in the first part of verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. Now, don't skip the two words truly, truly as we are introduced to this passage. They are critical in understanding what Jesus is trying to convey to those whom he's addressing. The truly, truly is the so be it. It's what many, when I grew up in the church a lot, we heard, amen, you know, when the preacher was preaching. We don't hear that quite often anymore. Uh, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, First Baptist Church, and we had a guy named Ralph Jaramillo who said amen about 50,000 times in one of my sermons. And people came to me and said, Pastor, can you keep him quiet? And I said, if you can box that up, brother, then go ahead and try. So that's what it is. Amen! So be it. And there's an intensity here in the words of Jesus. There's an intensity that we, we cannot miss. Jesus is this not saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, blah, 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 blah. That's not it. There's there's a passion, there's an intensity about what Jesus is communicating and conveying to his disciples, so be it, truly, truly, listen to me, my disciples. Now, those of us who are parents understand that sometimes when we give instructions to our children, they don't listen, right, parents? And sometimes you have to repeat yourself multiple times. I was in the Family Life Center uh, Saturday morning, and I heard uh, Mattingly you know, say to their little boys two times or three times the same thing. And, and, and the, the, the tension that mom's voice kind of gets or, or dad's voice gets when you know, you're trying to listen to me. Because if they don't listen, they don't do what you're about to tell them to do. And, and many times they don't listen. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get the attention of his disciples. Listen to me. This is important stuff. If you are my disciple, this is important. You can't overlook it. You can't skip it. You can't avoid it. Truly, truly, I, Jesus, your master, your messiah, the one you have left everything to follow. I, Jesus, am speaking into your life. It's not someone else coming and speaking a word from the Lord or from his word. It is Jesus Himself speaking into their lives. Truly, truly, I, Jesus, say to you who are my disciples, if you are my my disciple, if you have left everything and you are following in my footsteps as my disciple, becoming like me, doing as I do, living as I live, saying what I say, and becoming what I become. Truly, truly, I say to you, who are my disciples, whoever believes. It's interesting that Jesus is addressing his disciples, and then he goes, Way over here. I want you to notice that. He's he's over here and he's he's talking to his disciples, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever believes. He he draws attention away from just the disciples, the apostles, to whoever believes. The word whoever means exactly that whoever. Whoever believes. It's not just for the, the apostles. This, this is not a, a, a time in which Jesus is speaking to the lives of his apostles and saying, hey, guys, this is just for you and for nobody else. He says this is not just only for you, but it is for whosoever. That means if you today are a disciple of Jesus, he is speaking today from this text into your life. You are the whosoever. You are the disciple today. This is a passage, this is a word from the Lord to all who are His disciples. Whoever believes, if you believe in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you believe in Him, this is for you. So, who is He addressing? All of us. All of us. Take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, it's not on the screen. You're going to have to use your Bibles. If you have a, something that lights up like an iPhone or something, it's going to help you in, in some of the darkness that's there. But Matthew 17. We're going to have four verses with these four questions. Matthew 17. There are two types of faith. There's saving faith, and I call it serving faith. And and certainly Jesus, I believe, is talking about saving faith. Those of you who have placed saving faith in me as your Savior and Lord, I am speaking to you, but we also see... In the contextualization, as we look at the whole passage and the narrative in which Jesus is addressing his disciples, it's not just about saving faith, it's about serving faith because it's important that once I step into faith in Jesus as my Savior, I continue to walk in faith and trust and confidence and believe in him that he can do things in me and through me for the purpose of Investing what he's entrusted me into his kingdom work as I labor in his field It takes faith. It takes belief. It takes trust And certainly what I believe about Jesus in that reality of him using me is huge Because if I don't believe, if I can have saving faith but not serving faith Because you know, I'm not really sure I have much to offer him I'm not sure there's much he can do through me I'm not sure, you know, I... I'm just, So he's talking about the whosoever believe. He's talking about whosoever has great faith and those who have little faith. Notice in Matthew seventeen fourteen. And when they came to the crowd, Jesus was away with his disciples and they came down. And they came to the crowd. A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Was healed when? Instantly. And then later on, his disciples and Jesus were all sort of by themselves. He disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast him out? They didn't believe. They lack faith, and he says to them in verse 20, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible It's not for you. It's not about how great or how grand your faith is. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, God can use you. It doesn't require a lot of faith. Because just a little bit of faith. How small is a mustard seed? Brother Denny, do you, do you plant mustards? You know, it's not, mustard's a thing I squeeze out of my... I don't have any idea what a seed is. It's small, isn't it? So small that none of you have seen one. Just makes my point even better. It's so small you've never seen one. A single seed. If you have that small of a faith, God can use you to do greater works than even he did. We're going to get there in a minute. God not only wants you to do the works that he did, but he wants to do greater works than he did through you. You, little, unimportant, small, minuscule, unknown little faith you all of us are included here everyone who is disciple you have to have some faith and even if it's small he's addressing you truly truly I say to you if you believe this is for you so who's addressing all of us now question number two what is Jesus expecting from us what is he expecting? He's expecting two things from his disciples. Um, and we take a look at it in the second part of verse 12. Whoever believes in me, notice he says, will also do the works that I do. Will also do the works that I do. If you are a Christ Follower, If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus If you believe in him as your Savior and your Lord You will also do the works that he did Chew on that for a minute What did Jesus do when he gave this to his disciples? They had seen him do some incredible things up until now Jesus has been at work and he's done some miraculous things. I mean, if you take a look at the book of John by itself, uh, he turned water into wine. Um, he fed 5,000, he healed a man who was uh, paralytic. 38 years at the Pool of Siloam, he healed him. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And here Jesus is telling his disciples, you have witnessed, you have seen what I did and I have done up until now. I am telling you now that we're in this upper room on the last evening that we are together. I'm about to die on the cross. There's an intensity here. I'm about to die on a cross, and these are my last words to you. I've already told you that I'm leaving, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in the process of your dealing with that, don't don't be worried because, you know, I'm going to come again. And in the meantime, I want you to work. And as you're working, I want to tell you that the work that you're going to do in my absence is the same work that I have done, the same work that you have seen me do up until now. And they're thinking to themselves, I can't walk on water. I can't raise the dead. I can't heal the blind. I can't tell a parapolitic, your sins are forgiven, rise and walk. What is he talking about? I believe Jesus is talking about here the forgiveness of sin. The work that Jesus came to do was was to forgive sinners of their sin who put their faith and trust in him as their Savior. Why did he do these works? We know why he did these works if you're a student of the Bible. He didn't do them just to be a show-off. He did them in order so that people would believe. Look at 1411. It says, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Six times in this very small narrative of these 14 verses, Jesus used the word believe. And the reason why he is doing what he is doing is so that he can lead them to believe in him as their Savior. And all the works that he did, as magnanimous and miraculous as they were, were to draw attention to himself as the Messiah, the promised Savior, so that they would believe that he was the Christ. That's what he did them for. Believe in me. And so he did these works to point people to himself as Savior. And so what you are to do here is the same work that he did, and that is to point people to Jesus. He's not saying you have to do miraculous things. He's saying that everything that you do in your life is to point people to faith, to believe, and to trust in Jesus. Everything you do is to bring them to faith in him. You are to do the same work that he has done. You are not here for yourself. You're not here for yourself. You are here to point people to Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And I wonder how much of your life is pointing people to Jesus. That's the work that he's saying you got to do. The work that, that, that you're to do is the work that I have done to point to myself that I am the Savior. And we are to live our lives pointing people to Christ as the Savior. That's, that's part of it. But then Jesus has the audacity to make this incredible statement. And greater works than these will you do. Dad gum. Greater than what Jesus did? He's the Messiah. He is deity. He is the Son of God. How can I do greater works than Jesus? How is that possible that I can do that? What is greater than what Jesus did? Now, I want you to take in context what he has said. He's speaking now to his disciples, not having died on the cross and been buried and raised from the dead. He's speaking from here on, what you've seen so far, okay, so far, what I have done, you're going to do greater than feeding the five thousand. You're going to do greater than raising the dead. You're going to do greater than heal, uh, healing a paraplegic. You're going to do greater than those. Th- you're going to do something greater than that. What is greater than that? You ask. Well, turn in your Bibles. I'm going to answer the question in John chapter three. The greater work that He is calling us to do is simply this. The greatest work that could ever be done is a work that we do in the field as we labor for him, as we point people to Jesus and proclaim the gospel message of Christ, the regenerational redeeming work of the Holy Spirit comes in and washes someone from their sin, cleanses them and breathes in them a new life. In other words, it is described here as the new birth. That happens when someone comes to faith in Christ, because you see Jesus, while He forgave sin, and in John 20 He breathes on His 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 Holy Spirit on the disciples, and He goes in and tells them, He said, "Go and and forgive sin." He tells them that in John 20. Uh, Jesus forgave sin. That that's that's a greater work than all the miracles. Well, we're going to do a greater work than just tell people they're forgiven. The greater work that we're going to do is lead people to faith in Christ, and as we lead them to faith in Christ, they're going to be reborn. Jesus never gave anybody new birth, new life. You know how I know that? Jesus hasn't died on the cross for their sin. Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And the power of the resurrection has not been fully implemented yet on the gospel of Christ and those who put their faith and trust in him. And so we now get to do a greater work than Jesus did because when we point people to Jesus and we proclaim the gospel and they receive Jesus as their Savior, the life, death, burial, and resurrection becomes a reality to them. And now this resurrected Jesus, through the power of the resurrection, invades their lives and makes them new creations in Christ. Jesus did not do that work. He couldn't have done it until he died, rose, and ascended, and now the indwelling Holy Spirit that he's about to send, we're going to see it in a minute, is now what does that work in the heart of the believer that makes us new creations in Jesus. That's the greatest work that we could possibly do. Notice, it's an interesting text. It's sort of a a preliminary thing in, in John 3 where we have a guy named Nicodemus who approaches Jesus in the middle of the night. you know, And he's a student of the Bible, and, and, he, and he's been working his way into heaven. But in all the, the works that he has done, he has not lived up to what he knows is the standard that God has set in order for him to get to heaven. He has this intellectual concept about, about how he needs to come to faith, and this intellectual approach is not working for him. And there, I'm convinced there are millions of Nicodemuses today in the church. It's an intellectual pursuit rather than a new birth experience. And a lot of people know facts and informations about Jesus and, 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 and all that, but they've never had a new birth experience. And Nicodemus has not had one of those. And he comes to Jesus and how can I be saved? And Jesus said, you've got to be born again. He said, how can I do that? Enter to my mother's womb and be born again. He said, no, 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 you don't get it. You've got to be born of the Spirit. And to cut it short, you go down to verse 14. He says in John 3. This is how it's done, Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Christ, I am the Jesus, I am to be lifted up, I am to die on a cross for sins I didn't commit, and those who look to me and and who trust in my death for their death, those who look to me to take upon themselves, take upon myself their sin against God, I die in their place. They put their faith in that death, and they put their faith in my resurrection power who set them free from the condemnation of sin and from the enslavement of sin. I am now setting them free. It is through that experience where you look to Jesus as me, as the Savior, he's saying that experience is what sets people free. That's what gives them a new birth, the being born again, so to speak. The new birth, where we receive a new heart, a new mind, a new life, a new everything. And I have seen many, many people over the years who have an intellectual understanding of Jesus, but yet lack the new birth experience. And Jesus said, unless you've had the new birth experience, you are not of me. So what is he expecting us to do? He's expecting us to point people to Jesus As we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, they are then to receive Jesus as their Savior and they are to be born again. That is the greatest work that we are to do in the field that is ready for the reaping. That's what Jesus is expecting from us. So, question number three why is it accomplished? Why is it accomplished? Why is this supernatural work accomplished? It is is something that that we cannot do independently and apart from God. I cannot save myself on my own. Neither can I lead someone else to be saved. It is he who saves people. How is this new birth? How is this regenerational work of the Spirit? How is it accomplished? Notice the the last part of verse 12. Notice he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, Will also do the works that I do, and the greater works than these will he do, because, here's the reason, because I am going to the Father, because I am going to, that's kind of strange to me, I don't know if it's strange to you, I kind of look at that and I scratch my head, because I go to the Father, what in the world does that mean? Because I go, I, Jesus, am going to the Father. He's told them in John 14, he's going to the Father, and he's going to prepare a place for them. And if I go and prepare a place for them, I will come again to receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to come back. But in the meantime, I'm going to be up there in heaven. I'm going to be making a place for you. And that's a a beautiful passage that's used in many funerals. But Jesus says here, he reminds them what I've just said, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven But while I go to heaven, he says just after this in the next verses, in verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another paraclete. Someone who is going to live inside of you to be with you forever. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He will dwell with you and he will dwell in you. Jesus is saying here that I am going to the Father, and because I'm going to the Father, I'm going to send my helper, and it is my helper who is going to bring about this greater work that I'm asking you to do. You're not going to have to do it on your own. You're going to have a helper that I'm going to use in you and through you that's going to bring about that reality in other people's lives. Isn't that great to know that it's not up to us? Turn with me real quickly. I want to point to one passage in Titus 3, 3 through 7. Titus 3, 3 through 7. Titus 3, 3 through 7. I don't hear any Bibles going. Come on now. All right. Punch your neighbor and say, turn your Bibles to Titus 3, 3, 7. For we ourselves, regeneration, the regenerational work of the Spirit of God is best described in this passage. It's sort of it in a nutshell in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. This is, this is you before you were saved, by the way. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is pre-salvation. But, here's post-salvation, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, He saved us. We didn't save ourselves, He saved us. Notice, not double negative, not because, here's the reason, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's the effort of the unsaved. The unsaved are trying to work their way into heaven. He said, not by righteousness done by us when we're unsaved, trying to work our way into favor with God, but, huge word, according to his own mercy. By washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Two very important words washing and renewal. It is the Holy Spirit, when you, when you, when you are convicted of your sin and you place your faith and trust in Jesus and all that, that, that whole argument sometimes we have, what comes first, the chicken or the egg and, and salvation, it, it is all so, so closely connected. It, it's hard for us to say which comes first. But, but when, we, when we're convicted that, of our sin and we are convinced that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and, and he gives us the faith to trust in Jesus as our Savior and, and we do that, the Holy Spirit invades our lives. And he washes us, he washes, washing you by the blood of the lamb, completely clean, clear, and free from all sin in the past. The moment of your conversion, the moment of your salvation, whatever you did is under the blood, and you are now cleansed through and through, completely clean. You have been washed by the renewal, by the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit as His presence invades your life, and he washes you clean. Isn't that awesome? Old things have passed away because all, all things have become new, and you are birthed through this washing that's, that's called the regenerational work of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he breathes new life into you, and he cleanses you. The Holy Spirit is, what, is the one who does that. But notice he says also the word, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the day-to-day that happens after. That's what we call sanctification. That's the, the slow but steady process of him taking out and adding things into your life so that you will eventually reflect the perfect image of Jesus. Because let's face it, once we receive the, re- the washing of the Spirit of God and we step into this new life, we still live in a sin-filled world and we still struggle with the flesh and, and with self and, and temptation and all of those things. And, and we, we don't completely reflect the likeness and the image of Jesus. And so as we progress in this life, he's slowly taking away and adding things. This is the renewal work, the daily renewal of the cleansing power of the Spirit of God. So it is the work of the Holy Spirit that invades our lives and washes us clean and makes us clean. Acceptable before God It's the the new birth The regenerational work of the Holy Spirit He breathes life into you And now you're no longer dead You are now alive Wow That's how it's accomplished Through the person The presence and the power Of the Holy Spirit and I know we're Baptists and we're afraid of being a little bit somewhat charismatic. But, you know, we can't deny the third person of the Trinity, you guys. And we've got to understand how he works and operates in renewing us and making us like Jesus. Last and final question. I'm running out of time. When will it happen? When will it happen? When we join the labor force out in the field. And as we join the labor force out in the field, he told us last week in Matthew 9, we're to do what? Pray. It's not by an accident that Jesus in 14, 13 and 14 says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. In other words, what he's saying to us as we work, we need to make sure that we rest in his promise. He makes a promise here that whatever you ask, whatever you need in accordance to my name, my character, my, my will in accomplishing as you invest that which I've entrusted you in the field, whatever you need, whatever you want, this I will do. That's a promise. Whatever you ask in my name, in accordance to my plan and my purpose and my objective, I will do it. That's an, and we just rest in his promises, knowing that as we advance into the field, that he will provide because he promises he will do what we ask and provide what we need. But as long as we recognize there's a purpose here, and the purpose is described in the next phrase, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What's our purpose for advancing into the field? It's to glorify the Father and to glorify the Son. The purpose is not to, to fill a house filled with vacant or empty pews or chairs. The purpose is not to increase our, 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 our attendance or our membership. It's not to, to make me have a greater platform. It, it's none of that. It's all for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's to honor and to glorify Him. That's the purpose. And if we're doing it for any other purpose, it won't happen. It only happens when we do it to, to lift up the name of Jesus and to glorify him and only him. And there is a fleshly side of us that often wants to take recognition and, and seek glory for ourselves. And, and we must constantly suppress that and push it down and say, no, it's not about me. But we make it so much about me, don't we? I know I have a problem with me. And my me is no bigger than your Me. Because I want to make it all about me. But it's all about him. And until it's all about him, and that's the purpose for why we're seeking to do that and going to the field, it won't happen. And then lastly, notice verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Wow. He'll provide whatever we need. He'll provide it. If you ask anything, that word anything is all-inclusive. Anything that you need in order to go out into my field and work the harvest, to not only do works that I have done, but do the greater work than, than what I did, and that is to bring new life to dead people, to bring new life to dead people. If you're out in the harvest field and doing that, anything you need, you will have it. I'll do it for you. As long as that's what you're doing. If you're doing anything else, you can hang it up. And that, that little word, if, is a large two-letter word in the English vocabulary because it's a condition that must be met in order for God to do what he wants to do. If you ask and you do what I ask you to do, I will do it for you. Last verse, John 11, and we'll close. Last verse, John 11. And we might be done right before noon if we're... Real quick John 11 verse 25 I don't hear any bibles out there John 11:25 I'm not going to go any faster until I hear bibles moving there you go John 11:25 What happens in John 11 we know that Lazarus is on his deathbed and Mary and Martha his sister they're in Bethany and they send word to Jesus It's only a couple of miles from where Jesus is to Bethany, and and, uh, he he delays. He stays two days longer after he receives word, and by the time he gets to Bethany where uh, the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he's been there many times, he discovers that Lazarus is already dead. He had already died. In the meantime, as they're journeying from from there to, to Bethany, he has the time to, to have school with his disciples and tell him that the purpose for which we're going to Bethany is to glorify God the Father through the Son. That's why we're going there. And he's not going to stay dead. Don't worry about it. God's in charge. What's going to happen there when we get there is to glorify the Father and glorify the Son. So he gets there and he discovers that Jesus, Jesus discovers that Lazarus is dead. And of course Martha comes up and says, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so she sends for Mary and... Mary comes out and pretty much says the same thing that Martha did. Jesus, if you had cared one ounce about our problem, Lazarus would not have died. You were supposed to love us and care about us, and now he's dead. He says, don't you worry. Things are going to be fine. Take me to the burial site. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Verse 39, Jesus said, I take away away the stone. Martha protest, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, meaning he stinketh. For he has been dead for four days. You ever work for the police department and come across a person who's been dead for four days, it's an odor you'll never forget, and it is not pleasant. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Notice, Jesus, before he does anything, what does he do? He prays. Jesus, the Son of God, prays to the Father sitting on the throne. And I can imagine it was a prayer that everyone heard. It wasn't mumbled or muttered, it was prayed not very loudly, but not concealed. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Pray, Lord of the harvest. You follow me? Pray, Lord of the harvest. Pray before you go. (laughs) Jesus prayed before he did anything. and He prayed. Father, glorify yourself through the activity of your Son. Verse 43 And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Talk about uncomfortable. And Jesus said to them, unbind him or loose him and let him go. What did Jesus do? He gave life to dead people. That is the greatest work that we have been called to do, to give life to dead people. Some people want to tell you that the greatest offering you can give God is praise. It's not. Some people will tell you that the greatest gift you can give God is to play your instrument really good and really great, or to sing with a wonderful voice are to serve in a wonderful way. The greatest activity of a disciple of Jesus is to bring life to dead people. That is the greatest gift. And we have that calling, we have that commissioning from Jesus himself, not only to do the works that he did, but to do greater works than what he did not only to point people to Jesus and to proclaim the gospel, he did both of those, but to bring life to dead people, spiritual life. Because those that we live with and live around and, and, and commune with and sit in ballparks with and go to school with and, and work with, if they don't know Jesus, they're dead. They just don't know it. And like that dumb movie I saw not long ago, He says, I see dead people everywhere. May God open our eyes to see the dead people around us. Because he wants to breathe new life into them. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And indwell them with his Holy Spirit and breathe new life into their dead bodies. So that they might not only live an abundant life, here, but live an eternal life in heaven so that when he returns, they'll be united with their groom and his name is Jesus. That's our our calling, church. If you're a disciple of Christ, that's your calling. And what surprises me is that 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 there are people who claim to know Jesus who have never led a single person to faith in Jesus their whole lives. Their whole lives. And if they've led anybody to Christ, it's no one outside of their immediate family. And I ask you, is that the kind of disciple that is doing the kind of greater work that Jesus said all of us are to be doing? We are without excuse because everything that we say and do, everything that we've been entrusted with is for the sole purpose of pointing people to Jesus, proclaiming the gospel so that through the power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit can renew their spirits, breathe new life into their dead bodies, and make them ready not only to enjoy an abundant life but an eternal life. In heaven, Because one of these days The trumpet of God is going to blow And the dead in Christ will rise And those of us who remain Will be caught up together with them in the clouds And we will be forever with the Lord And when that day happens Eternity will begin And chances for any other decisions after that Are done with And those who are not ready for that day For that wedding day Will perish In a place the Bible calls hell For all eternity A place of incredible suffering because we, we didn't pray, and we didn't fulfill the great commission of Jesus. And I wonder, when we're standing accountable before Jesus, we will as, as Christians, you know, we're, we, we won't be damned, but we will stand accountable, and he's going to ask us, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? What did you do with it? I gave you time and talent and treasure. What did you do with it? Did you waste it on yourself? Or did you use it for the purpose for which I gave it to you? And I wonder how many of us honestly will
1: just.
0: True disciples don't do that.